0: The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. We, we live in a day and a time of rivalries, don't we? We live in a day and time of rivalries. Some of, some of the uh, most famous historical rivalries that you may think of uh, are, are the, that of the English with the French, right? Or, or maybe the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, or, or a lot of times, though, our minds, they flow to sports rivalries, right? That, that you, you, we think of bedlam, of OU versus OSU. Even that word bedlam means rivalry, hostility, uh, we, we think of the Red River Rivalry. When say that three times fast. Red River Rivalry uh, between OU and Texas, and uh, which Texas got the better hand uh, this past year? Mike, no amens there, please. Uh, but then we could also think right of the Red Sox and the Yankees. We we, we have sports rivalries, uh, but not only historical and sports rivalries. There's also religious rivalries, aren't there? And, and this is maybe a bit more uh, uh, consequential than than winning a game or losing a game. We, we think of Ireland, uh, the, the Catholics versus the Protestants, and in the war um, that, 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 that has been waging lives that have been lost as a result of this religious rivalry. We think of Islam, Sunni versus Shia, or even within Christianity, we have mainline liberal Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism. Uh, we, we can keep going, right? Political, Democrat versus Republican, social, liberal versus conservative, or, or maybe t- in, in today's parlance, work, woke versus anti-woke. Uh, we, we think of uh, the economic rivalry of U.S. and China. Uh, and, and, and then what is prominently on display, the war in Ukraine, right? The, the real, where, where lives are being lost because of that, the, the hostility between Russia and Russia. In Ukraine, we live in a world of rivalries, in a world full of division and hostility. However, our text this morning shows us the solution for all of these divisions and all of these hostilities in our world. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our peace and who brings unity within his church. The the way of the world is to divide all things, but the way of Christ is to unite all things In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul focuses on our vertical relationship with God and teaches us about our personal identity and the benefits that we receive through the gospel individually, through what Christ has accomplished for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. But here this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through twenty. Paul broadens this view to now show how the gospel not only affects our relationship with God vertically, but also how it affects our relationship with one another. Or maybe to put it another way, we, we receive not only a new personal identity in the gospel, but we also receive a new corporate identity in the gospel. These are two sides of the same gospel coin. And so let's begin our study this morning of Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you or your phone. If you don't have your physical Bible, I encourage you to open your phone uh, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We're going to read it real quick. We'll pray and then we'll begin our study. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him. We have both, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. Let's pray. Father I pray right now that you would if there be any busy hearts right now that you would calm them that you would calm my busy heart Lord that you would help us just to during these next 30 minutes to submit ourselves to your word that that we would listen for an audience of one that, that, that our hearts would be sensitive to your spirit's leading, his conviction, his encouragement. And I pray, Father, that you would use us as a church, that that you would use us to to do good works and to do good works by by living in unity with one another and by seeking to be the agents of reconciliation in our world. Where, Where else could we go? Lord Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So come now, we pray. Speak to us through your word, for your servants are listening and your servants are ready to obey. In Christ's sake, for, in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Amen. All right, so just a, a touch of background before we get started. Uh, in, in these uh, verses here, and, and as you as you read that, right, it's pretty wordy, isn't it? There's a lot packed into these 11 verses verses. And so uh, Emily and I and the kids, we went down to Broken Bow this this past week and uh, for a little mini vacation. And as we we're driving down, you know, the, the windy roads, you're going down into the valleys and, and, and you're, you're driving, you're going forward, but you're trying to look, you're trying to take it all in as you're moving forward. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to go verse by verse and, and, and we're going to go a little, we're going to have to go a little bit fast because of time's sake. But as we go, I just want you to kind of take it all in, get it. And my hope and my prayer is that God would speak to you through his word this morning. But, but as we look at these 11 verses, Paul describes a deep, complex, hostile rivalry between these Jews and Gentiles. Uh, this, this rivalry, it was religious. Gentiles did not know the God of Israel. Not only it was it religious, though; it was cultural. Jews had rituals, they had feasts, they had ceremonies that distinguished them from other nations. But it was also racial. The Jews could boast of having the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flowing through their veins, and the Gentiles could not. But what Paul teaches here in this passage is that, that there was a vertical and a horizontal purpose for Christ's death, that through the cross we're not only reconciled to God, right? But we are reconciled to one. Now, then so my outline this morning consists of three words. The first word is alienation, the second word is reconciliation. And then the third word is identification, alienation, reconciliation and identification, who we once were, what Christ has done and who we now have become. And so first alienation, who we once were. Look at with me, verse 11, where Paul says, therefore, remember, and we've done this a bit in, in the, over the past few weeks, but remembrance upon who we once were church before Christ, it leads us to humility. When we fail to remember, pride begins to reside in the void where humility once was. And so even right now, I want you to remember who you once were before God saved you through the blood of Christ. Remember your hopelessness. And maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was two years ago, maybe it was two or three or four decades ago. But remember your hopelessness. Remember your helplessness. Remember your pursuit of the self-gratifying pleasures that could never satisfy your soul. And remember your relationships, that they were marked by tension and anger and jealousy and bitterness and and gossip and slander, right? But most importantly, remember your state before God, that you were a self-condemned, transgressing, treasonous sinner, justly deserving of his wrath. We talked about that two weeks ago, right? Right? And so before Paul calls us to gospel unity, he calls us first to gospel humility by reminding us of who we once were before Christ. Because hostility and rivalry and division, they they all spring from a prideful heart. So before we can seek unity, we must first seek humility. We need to remember who we once were and that we're not self-made Christians, that we are grace-made Christians. And so my prayer is that we would continually harbor, anchor our hearts in the harbor of humility. And so he goes on to say in verse 12, that, that let's read verse 12. Remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so Paul here reminds the Gentiles, and by virtue of that, us today as well, because we are Gentiles, we're not part of the, the, the covenant covenant, uh, old, old, old covenant people of God. So Paul reminds the Gentile believers of five benefits that the Jewish people under the old covenant that they were privy to and five benefits that the Gentiles did not have access to. And, and so again, as we go through these, imagine yourself, read yourself into these yous in our text. First, that we you at that time were separated from Christ. So not only were the Gentiles separated from Christ personally from Messiah, but even more, they had no national hope of the Messiah that Israel had because the messianic promises they were given to Israel and right not to the Gentile nations. So there was no collective hope among the Gentiles. And secondly, they were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. And, and so up to this time, some Gentiles, they were admitted into Judaism as proselytes, but as a whole, Gentiles were excluded and thus alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and therefore alienated, as we'll see next, from the covenants of promise. And you'll see there that they were strangers to the covenants of promise, verse 12. And this refers primarily to the Abrahamic. And the Davidic covenants. And so go back to the Old Testament with me. Uh, we just read through Genesis. So you should be up to date with the Abrahamic covenant. And, and, and in due time, we'll get through uh, to 2 Samuel to talk about the Davidic covenant. But, but a quick overview of the Abrahamic covenant. In, in this covenant, God promises Abraham three primary things. To give his descendants land. To, give his, to, to multiply his descendants. And, to, uh, and that through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so we, we so this was the initial hope, the the initial covenant that God made with his people. And so it would later get specified with the Davidic covenant when, when when God promises David later on. And he says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And, and the Lord says to David, he goes on to say he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so the way Abraham's offspring would bless all the families of the earth, it would be through this throne of David being established forever. Israel had the covenants of promise. They had this expectation and this hope of what one day would occur. And the Gentiles did not. They, they had a desire for the Messiah, for God's promised king to save God's people. And so even though Rome occupied them during this time, even though they were oppressed by Rome, it was this hope. It was this hope of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises that sustained Israel. And the Gentiles did not have this. They were strangers to this covenantal hope because they were on the outside looking in. They were a people without hope. And that's what Paul says next, right? They're separated. They're alienated. They're strangers. Fourthly, they have no hope. Hope. Because they did not know God. They did not know hope. Not only were they without hope, but even worse, right? They were without God in the world. And and so this word without God, it's the same word that we get atheist today. And and so the people were without God, not in the sense that they didn't believe God, but in the sense that they didn't have a true knowledge of God as he had revealed to his people Israel. And therefore, they had no no fellowship with him. They had no personal relationship, no personal knowledge with God. And and so just to sum it up, John Stott, he was was a a pastor in the 20th century. He said this. He said, this was the situation of the Gentile world before Christ. They were Christless. They were stateless. They were friendless. They were hopeless. And they were godless. They were, as Paul said, far off. Alienated from God and from the people of God, and so church, remember that's not just true of people two thousand years ago. Remember who you once were. This described you as well. But but do you remember those two greatest words in all the Bible that we studied two weeks ago? What were the two greatest words in all the Bible? But, but God. Right. And so Paul back, piggybacks off of that in our text this morning in verse 13, when he says, but now this is who you once were having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so that leads to our second word, and that is Reconciliation. In Ephesians 1, 7, which we've studied, Paul says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. And so listen, church, it is only by the blood of Christ that we can be redeemed from our sin, and it's only by the blood of Christ that we can brought, be brought near, reconciled to God and to one another. The cross of Christ, it stands at the center of all Christian theology and all of our Christian practice. Everything in Scripture, it's either leading up to or it's flowing from The cross, apart from the cross, we would still be separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope, and without God in this world. So listen, church, our only hope, and that's why my prayer right, that we would be a cross-centered, a gospel-centered church, because our only hope in this lifetime, it's the substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sake and in our place. A couple of verses to, to, to explain that. Second Corinthians 5.21, a well familiar verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Romans 3 would put it this way, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul gives the good news. We, 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 we have Romans 3.23 memorized. But verse 24 says this, and we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation. And that just means a wrath-removing substitute. Christ was substituted on the cross in our place to endure and to bear the wrath of God that we deserved. He was our propitiation. And so because of that, we have redemption in Him. When we were uh, when Ruby, maybe it was maybe six to nine months ago, we we were getting Ruby's shoes on and and Ruby was just asking, why, Daddy, why do I need to wear socks? And it's like, well, I mean, a few reasons, right? You're not going to get blisters. Uh, but then more importantly, it's so that your shoes don't stink, right? The, the socks take the stink. Uh, the, the socks help absorb the smell so that way your shoes don't stink. And she said, oh, the socks are kind of like Jesus. And I said, what? <laughs> okay, explain that one for me. She said, the socks take the stink just like Jesus takes our sins. And it's like, sweetheart, that's exactly right. That's what it means in, in a more, much more significant way, church. That's what it means for Christ to be our propitiation. Jesus, he takes, he absorbs, he endures the wrath that we deserved so that we could be counted righteous and forgiven. And as our text says, that we could be reconciled to God. He is forgiven our peace. And this is the gospel. We're now reconciled, welcomed into God's presence, befriended by God, full of hope, and with God in this world, only because we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so I just want to pause and ask, is that true of you? Are you trusting in the blood of Christ to reconcile you to God? Or are you still maybe trusting in yourself You know, earlier in verse 11, Paul talks about, um, he he, he says, uh, you know, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands. And so I I just want to ask, are you still trusting in an outer work, an outer religious work made by your own hands? Or have you been inwardly transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit? You no longer have to be a stranger and alienated and separated from God. He will have you this morning if you would turn from your sin and come to him through faith. Verse 14, we'll continue on. Verse 14, Paul says this, that he himself, church, he is our peace. And so the reason we don't have peace in our world is because we aren't at peace within. And the reason we don't have peace within, right, is because we are not at peace with God. And the reason we are not at peace with God is because we are rebelling against him in our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to forgive us of our sin, to pardon us of our treason, and to subdue our rebellion so that now we can be at peace with God. And being at peace with God, we can now be at peace within. And being at peace within, we can now be at peace with others in our lives. He himself, he is our peace. And so peace is first and foremost a person before it is an emotion. We have peace in our hearts because we have laid hold of Christ Jesus by faith. He himself is our peace. Paul continues on. He says, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so really, Paul, Paul, and when he's writing this, he has the temple in mind, but specifically from verse 14 on to the very end, he has the temple, the the the, Judea, um, the, the, um, the Israel temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he has that in mind. And so just a quick overview of the temple layout, and, and I apologize, I don't have a picture on the screen, but with the temple, there was this outer court, um, once you got through the gate, there was this outer Gentile court where where anybody was permitted to go into, but then... There was another gate and inside there was a, a, a courtyard for women. And then you go into another gate and there was a courtyard for priests. And then within that courtyard stood the holy place. And within the holy place, there was the Holy of Holies. So you had, so concentric, think concentric circles. Outer court where, where the, the Gentiles could be. Inner court where only Jews could be. And then inner court where the, only the priests could be. And then inner, inner, the holy place where only the high priest could be. Could go once a year. And so while Paul was writing this letter, there there was a literal you see that, that word there. That, that you know he has broken down in slash the dividing wall of hostility. Well, there was a literal wall standing in the place, standing in the temple that excluded the Gentiles, that separated Gentile from Jew. In the, uh, the ancient historian Josephus, he tells us that attached to this barrier, attached to this wall that separated Gentile from Jew, were messages in Greek and Latin warning that the Gentiles must not proceed further lest they die. And so Paul is playing off of this reality that existed at the temple. In, in one commentator, he put it this way. He said that while the temple was destroyed physically in A.D. seventy. It was destroyed spiritually around AD 33 or so when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. In his flesh, Jesus tore down the wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And so though it physically remained, Christ had broken down its significance and its purpose of keeping the Gentile people away from the presence of God and from the people of God. And so through his cross work, Jesus made God's presence now available to the Gentiles through his spirit. And now to us today, we can now become part of the people of God. In the gospel, God has united two groups of people who once hated each other or at hostility and and divided against one another. One was oppressing the other. One was uh, harboring bitterness toward the other. Jesus has united Jew and Gentile together as one singular people of God. So church, listen, any disdain or animosity or rivalry or division or hatred or bitterness toward other people... This has no place among the people of God because Christ died to destroy this division and he died to bring unity among us. And even in Jesus's chiefly prayer, right? In John chapter 17, what was Jesus's recurring and highest prayer? That we may be one. Jesus came to bring unity and to destroy division within the people of God. And so how has he broken down this wall of hostility? Again, you know, we're winding winding through the road. And so taking the views as we go, we're going a little fast here. But how has he done this? He's done it, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And and so most likely, Paul, right here, he's referring to the ceremonial laws that the Jews kept, but the Gentiles violated. And so because they violated these ceremonial laws, they were ceremonially unclean, and therefore in the eyes of the Jews, they could not come and enter into the presence of God. Again, they were separated. They were outside while the Jews could go inside, nearer to God's presence. And so the Jews, they looked down at the Gentiles with disdain and disgust because of their ceremonially uncleanness. But through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus abolished the need for the ceremonial law, since all, who, all can be washed by his blood. And all can be truly made clean and fit to enter into God's presence through the blood of Jesus. He, he, has, he has broken down this wall of hostility. He has abolished the, the, the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. And so here Paul teaches us who the true people of God are now. The people of God, they're now singular, namely the church. The, the covenant people of God, they're no longer isolated to a single people. But this one new man, it's comprised of Jew and Gentile alike, made up of a multitude of, of every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And, and so, we, we, church, we shouldn't think of the people of God as, as, uh, as, as one group of people in one era or dispensation, one group of people in, in one era or this dispensation, and then another group of people in a separate or future dispensation. No, no, God, our text says, has created a new people from among all the people groups of the world, a new humanity who now have resurrection life flowing through their veins. God has made in Christ a singular one people of God for all eternity. And, and Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And, and so there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are now all one in christ he has made one people of god a new man a new humanity with christ as its head in christ we are all now truly one people of god and so put a bookmark in here we're going to get uh, put uh, go back to that in the application later on verse 16 he has made one new man in the place of the two so making peace so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In short, what Paul is saying here is that there's not a separate atonement. There's not a separate salvation for Jew and then for Gentile. There's only one atonement made for all peoples, and that's the cross. And so maybe just to apply this a little bit for us today, right? This practically rubs against our natural inclinations and pride, doesn't it? If we're honest, wouldn't some of us naturally think that we are nearer and better off, maybe, and not needing as much atonement for our sins as, say, uh, maybe the the prostitute or the murderer or or fill in that blank for you. But here, Paul levels the playing field. Elsewhere, Paul would say that there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are viewed as same before God's sight. Sinner. And therefore, all are in need of the same salvation. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He he came to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is only one atonement for all peoples, and that is the cross of Christ. And then verse 17, we're just going to continue going on down this road of the passage. Verse 17, Paul says, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace who were near. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of peace before his cross. He proclaimed it on his cross and he proclaimed it after the resurrection. And now listen, church, he is still proclaiming this gospel of peace through us, his followers, right? You remember what, what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, that, that we are right to, to, to make uh, shoes ready to, to share the gospel of peace. We're to be ready at all times to share this gospel of peace. Just think about that. When we share the gospel, when we share the gospel, Christ is proclaiming this truth through us. And so again, I hope you're you're right uh, appreciating that reality that Christ you want if you want God to work through you, if you want Christ to be at work within you, all you have to do is proclaim the gospel because when you proclaim the gospel, Christ is at work and he is speaking through you. Okay, let's continue verse 18, where Paul says, Through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ's reconciling work work on the cross, we now have ongoing, uninterrupted access to God. We can now approach the throne of grace with boldness in prayer through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. One access, one way, one mediation, one mediator, and that is Christ Jesus. Through his death on the cross, he not only reconciled us to God, but he has also reconciled us to one another. And now we approach together in the same way in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we have identification of who we now have become. And so Paul summarizes Christ's reconciling work by reminding the Gentiles of their newfound identity alongside the Jewish Christians within the church. And he reminds them of the, same, uh, of the, of the reality that we partake in today. And he gives them three different word pictures. And he gives us three word pictures today that we are citizens that we are a family, and that we are stones in a temple. And so, first, verse 19, Paul says that we are citizens. And verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So, no longer, remember verse 11, or verse 11 and 12, what did Paul say? Before Christ, who were we? We were strangers and alienated from God's kingdom, but now we have been given citizenship. Now we are kingdom citizens. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.20, our, that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. And so this multi-ethnic, international and interracial kingdom of God, it's more splendid and it's more enduring than any earthly empire ever known. So listen, Paul, he was among the privileged minority who had Roman citizenship from birth during that time. And in Roman citizenship during this time, it was to be prized, right? People paid, paid large sums of money to obtain Roman citizenship. But Paul, even more than his Roman citizenship, he rejoices in the fact that through Christ, he has now become a citizen of God's kingdom. So church, so it should be for us today as well. While while we are blessed, we are incredibly blessed to be citizens of a great country. We need to remember that we are first and foremost citizens, not of America, but of the kingdom of God. We are first citizens of God's kingdom, and so our goal then is not to, um, uh, to to make America great again, or to save America, or to build it back better, but rather our aim in this life is to advance God's kingdom here in America, to our neighbors, and all around the world. We are citizens of God's kingdom, but but secondly, Paul says we are not only citizens, but but, but he has brought a familial aspect to it. We are now members of God's. Family, notice with me, verse 19, the second half of verse 19. There were fellow citizens with the saints, and we are members of the household of God. In Christ, all Christians are now together, children in his family. And So the church is not a building or an event that we go to, that we attend. The church, it's a family living together on mission. And so because of time, we'll move on. Thirdly, the, the, the third word picture that Paul gives us is so not only are we citizens in a kingdom, not only are we members of a family, but we are stones in God's temple. Look out with me, verses 20 through 22. Paul says, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this picture, this third and final word picture, again, it would have been very vivid for his audience. Because for nearly 1,000 years, the temple had been a focal point of Israel, from Solomon to Zerubbabel to Herod. But first, right, But as any good builder does, uh, Paul begins with the foundation. Uh, as you know, if you've looked for houses in Oklahoma, uh, you know what's the most important thing when you're looking to buy a house. You need to check the foundation, right? Because of the clay in the soil and the, the swelling and the shrinking, right? You know, there, there can be a lot of uh, things out of square, and, right? And it can get really costly without having, with having to put piers in and, and other type of foundational work. A, a structure, it can be rendered uninhabitable by a faulty foundation. And, and so what is the foundation, Paul says, that we are to build this new temple upon? How do we know whether it will hold up to the stresses and the forces that this new temple will endure? What does he say the foundation is? Verse 20, this foundation is built, that this new temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so church, this is why I endeavor imperfectly some weeks, many weeks. But this is why I endeavor every Sunday to teach the Bible and not my own thoughts or my own ideas, and this is why sermons are intended to be the preaching of God's word and not a TED talk about the latest cultural fashions and trends. Because the truth of the Bible alone is the foundation of the church. Because all the Bible, Old Testament and New, it all points to the cornerstone, Jesus, our Lord. Indeed, the Bible its one unified grand story pointing us to the redemption achieved by this cornerstone, Jesus Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And, and after his resurrection, Jesus said to the disciples, were, you remember Luke 24, the, the, the two disciples there are walking on the Emmaus road, and, and this guy comes up next to them, and they don't know who he is, but, it, but it's Jesus, and, and, and Jesus is talking to them, and he says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says what? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the Bible, it points us to Christ, who he is and what he has done to achieve our salvation. And Lord willing, next year, we're going to go through a sermon series where we walk through Genesis to Revelation, showing how all the Bible indeed points us to Jesus but but all the bible points us to christ and so he the, so we preach all the bible the apostles and the prophets with christ jesus being our cornerstone and so church listen this should affect the way we read our old testament as we're reading through the old testament right now in our reading when we read a passage in the old testament it's not just some a good bible story or some good moral lessons for us to glean instead we should ask this question when we read our old testament how does this passage point me to my need for salvation into to the one who provides me this salvation. And how does this passage ultimately find its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't just read our Bibles and the books of the Bibles in silos. We read them horizontally. We read them to see how they point us to Jesus Christ. The church, the new temple of God, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And, and the cool thing about this new temple Previously, right, you remember the, the, the structure of the of the temple, it was built in such a way to keep the Gentiles out of the temple of God, right? Previously, the Gentiles were not allowed to enter the temple. But now Gentiles are a part of the temple. They are part of a better temple, a temple comprised not of stones, but rather of God's people in whom God's spirit dwells. And, and so maybe let's come bring it to an end real quick. And, and some uh, a few points of application for the sake of time, I'll skip. I'll skip one one point here. The first point I want to encourage us as a church is for us to pursue gospel unity amid ethnic diversity. And I and I asked Don uh, during his corporate prayer. I asked him to to pray specifically that our church would begin to reflect the, the the ethnic makeup of our neighborhood, and we should pray for this and we should seek this in our church. So listen, church, this isn't some sanctified version of affirmative action for our church. And it's not a concession to our culture's gospel of race today. That, that's not what I, I'm not picking backing off of the cultural trends of the day. No, as Christians, we believe in the glorious news that Christ died for all peoples in this world. And so because Christ died to save people from all races and because we are to reach all our neighbors with the gospel, then it only makes sense that our church should reflect all the races within our neighborhood. Does does that progression make sense there? We we don't advocate for racial reconciliation and true gospel unity amid racial diversity in our neighborhood because it's cool or because it's the going trend. We do so because it's a gospel imperative given to us in our text this morning. And and if we're honest, right, if we're honest, the natural tendency... It's for like to flock to like, right? And for like to reach like, right? Because it's more comfortable. It's more convenient. It requires less of me to associate and maybe befriend someone who has a different culture, ethnicity, a different makeup and background. Right? And we, and we just to be honest, right? We see that as evidence in our church. And I don't say that to guilt us or to make us feel bad. I say that to highlight this point, that unless we intentionally and actively pursue this, unless we intentionally and actively pursue to reach everyone in our neighborhood with the gospel, we we, we won't trend toward racial diversity. We'll trend toward racial uniformity. And so we've got to be intentional in this effort, in this endeavor, to reach all peoples in our neighborhood, in our city, and among all the people groups of the world with the good news that Jesus saves. But, but 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 pursuing this ethnic diversity, it doesn't mean that we just reach people with other races and we just try to assimilate them into our way of doing things, right? No, they're not just joining our church, right? They're becoming members of the new family of God. You remember that, what Paul said. And, and so when new, new family members come into the family, that family culture should, should then mirror the family makeup. And so, and so that means that we as a church We should pray and we should be ready to embrace other cultural expressions of worship to God in ways that are so glorifying to his name. And it means for us as members of this one family asking good questions to better understand and appreciate the different cultures within our future midst, Lord willing. In short, when there is true gospel unity among ethnic diversity, the result, it's a blending of cultures with Christ at the center and with him being the uniting agent of them all the kingdom culture that that jesus died for is it transcends far above any other cultures of this world and and so we are to bring all cultures into that kingdom culture does that make sense and then finally i I, I'll, i'll we'll just end with this application and that piggies back off of what i just shared and that is for us to proclaim the light of the gospel in a world of darkness. And, and I've heard it when we were uh, about to head to the mission fields. So I heard people ask us this question. Well, why should we send missionaries when there is such a great need here in America to be done? Well, it's because Jesus aims to still preach peace to those who are far off, to the many unreached people groups of our world. And much like the Gentiles that were described in verses 11 through 22, there are still billions of people in our world who are in a similar state. They're completely ignorant of the good news of what Christ has done to save them from their sins. So listen, church, we're not only called to preach peace to those who are near us geographically, but we're also called to preach peace to those who are geographically far off from us. To people who are hostile to the gospel message, for only God can remove the hearts of hostility within their hearts. And you can only do that through the power of the gospel. And so Paul says, how, how can they know unless someone is sent, right? So my prayer is that we would continue to pray, continue to pray that God would raise up and that he would send out laborers from our church into the harvest field. And, and so listen, church, as we pray that, and we should be praying that regularly, Luke 10 2, that God would send out laborers into the harvest field. But listen, As you pray that, be aware that you might be the answer to your own prayer. How is, to tie it to last week's sermon, how is God calling you to spend your short span of a lifetime to do good works that he has prepared beforehand for you and to reach those who are far off from God? He he is calling you and he's calling us as a church to bring people near by sharing with them the good news that Jesus saves. He saves. He can reconcile them from their from their, their hostility with God, and he can reconcile them and unite them to God's people. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.